Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up today with Kevin McLean. He's CIO at Start Royalties, the TSXV's uh, newest royalty company. Uh, they're focused on mineral sands, uh, precious metals, uh, and some of the green metals too. Uh, we're talking about their business plan and how they hope to move forward and navigate through the royalty quagmire. If you want our thoughts on that, do join us at cruxinvestor.com where we get into some detail. You can also find detailed company reports and analysis on there, plus commentary from experts from around the world, plus our view on the royalty market. Uh, there are training courses to help you with your intelligence process and summaries of other interviews that we've done just to save you some time because we know you're busy. And if you want to join a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe, friendly environment, free from judgment, trolling and abuse, and I hope you think that sounds nice because it is, please join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Kevin, how are you, sir? Matt, I'm great, thank you. How are you doing? Very well, very well. Well, thank you uh, for joining us. I um, appreciate your, uh, you giving us this time. So where in the world are you? Uh, I'm in Oakville, about 20 miles west of Toronto. So we're less locked down than Toronto, so it's not too bad. Right, so you're, you're not in hiding, per se. You're, uh, you're working from home. Not in hiding. And I was able to get out this week and get a haircut just for you. Wonderful, wonderful. I, I've, I've actually got interviews which I do with regularly with some CEOs, and we can we can map out the whole year just in haircuts. It's it's a sight to behold. <laughs> let me tell you. Um, well, I appreciate joining us for uh, Royalty Week this week. Um, I think you you have the privilege of being our youngest royalty company. You've been uh, public for, for three weeks now. Three weeks today. Yes, that's right. Congratulations, congratulations. But you, you. You're, at, you're hard at it a little bit before that as well, weren't you? Yeah, we've been uh, private since mid-2019. Uh, we got together, myself and three other uh, colleagues, former colleagues actually, we've all worked together in either mining research or in uh, precious metals fund management. And we got together and we decided we wanted to start a company in what we thought was the best business model in the precious metals world, which is royalty and streaming. So we put our, our heads together and uh, we thought, look, we, we have to build a company here that's going to check all the boxes that we'd want to see checked if we were analysts still or if we were still managing portfolios. So, of course, you always want to have an um, independent board, diverse skill sets, uh, mining savvy, to be sure. You want to have an experienced and successful uh, mining team, which we thought we were. You want to build a portfolio of uh, low-risk cash flowing and near cash flowing assets and very much in safe jurisdictions where you'd be very comfortable you know, taking your family for vacation. Uh, you don't get those combinations typically in, in most uh, markets, but we, we set about to do that. So we raised $18 million as a private company and we went out and we built our portfolio up with five initial investments, uh, four royalties, one stream, we underwrote and created four of those uh, opportunities, um, and we bought one, a third-party opportunity from actually from RCF, which is liquidating one of their investment partnerships. So our business model is to underwrite and create. We, we think there's advantages to doing that. Um, first of all, you get tremendous due diligence um, when you create an opportunity. If you're buying a third-party royalty, that due diligence is generally quite limited and you may not even be able to get yourself on the property. Uh, our team, by the way, has had boots on the ground on, on hundreds of mining assets around the world. 
Um, and through our analytical and, and fund management experience, we've transacted, I think myself, over $2 billion of, of capital um, provisions for mining sector. So we've, we've done it before. We have deep uh, connections globally and deep asset knowledge globally. So we're, we're happy to carry on and, and build from the ground up uh, a quality portfolio. Okay, so you say you've been there and done it before, but what does that actually mean? I mean, have you transacted royalties before? I've not transacted royalties before. No, we're, we're new from that perspective. I've clearly been an investor in virtually every royalty company that's ever existed. Uh, so we're familiar with how the model works. We've hired the best uh, legal and, uh, and audit help to help make sure we do everything properly, everything's contracted properly. Um, and we're not uh, vulnerable to any, any omissions, let's say. Right, and, and so when you say you're attracted to this uh, model, you know, you, you've, you've obviously worked in um, the resources side, mining side, investment, fund management, all of, all of you know, finances is, is big and wide and varied, but you're, you're attracted to this specifically why? You're looking up at the Wheatons and the Francos and going, yeah. we want to be like that? Yes, look, eventually, sure. Um, what we want to do is tap into the, the wealth creation potential of the gold sector, which is really the number one reason to be invested in the space is for that wealth creation potential. The trick is, how do you do it with modest and controlled risk? You can go out and buy an expiration stock and, and hope for the best. You can buy an operating company with uh, excellent geology and, and benefit as they extend reserve life. Or, or you can get the best of both worlds by investing and providing capital to a, an opportunity to expand or develop an asset that will generate cash flow for you, but at the same time will be self-funding in terms of creating wealth for you by adding additional reserves and resources. So we think this is the, the best way to get uh, really low risk, decent free cash flow yields. And as you know, the mining industry is not being a consistent provider of free cash flow yields as an operator uh, over, over the decades. And at the same time, you don't miss out on, on the expiration upside, uh, which is so important. It's why you know, Franklin Nevada in particular has done so well. You know, incubating their company with Gold Strike as, as a starter asset, you couldn't start any better. Right, okay. I guess what I'm trying to get at is the, you know, the team that you've constructed is walking into a space which it, it's, it's not, it understands, but it's not transacted in previously. So there's going to be a few things you have to learn along the way. So how do you go about building up the team's expertise or what, what resource or expertise do you bring in to mitigate the kind of mistakes of learning as you go along? Okay. So, you know, our CEO, Alex Pernan, before he joined us, he was with uh, Barrick Gold uh, in the corporate development position. He was actually responsible for packaging up Barrick Gold's royalty properties uh, for a public spin-out. Uh, that effort was uh, short-circuited by the Rand Gold merger, but it gave uh, Alex uh, a lot of expertise in, in that particular area, being instantly involved with, with Barrick's royalty portfolio. Uh, our chief business development officer, Peter Burris, uh, for a time was specializing in, in precious metals and mining royalty companies. Uh, as an analyst, and so that was his, his focus in life. Um, our chairman, executive chairman, Tony Rusiak, was investment banking at, at Canaccord Genuity and was certainly involved in uh, being exposed to the royalty sector and financing the royalty sector. But <clears throat> at the end of the day, uh, we don't make a move without having 
our legal counsel, Faskin, who's the same counsel as, as Franklin Nevada uses, to oversee what we're doing to make sure that we're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. Okay. Um, brokers, analysts look at royalties from a very high level, right? They they they, they looked at mm-hmm. the, they don't usually do a deep dive into you know two hundred different assets within a royalty company and kind of get in, get into the weeds. Nor do they typically uh, assess projects on the ground. So, um, how how who are the people that assess which deals are good technically good uh, enough for you to you know put other people's money down for for to invest. In, in that property, because I think that that's the secret source here is working out who's actually going to get into production where your cash flow actually comes sure. from. Sure. So when we before we invested in the Keystone uh, or sorry Keybrook Keysbrook Mineral Sands asset in Australia, we hired TZMI, who are a world class mineral consulting uh, group, to go and, and kick the tires on the asset. Particularly during COVID, we couldn't go personally. But we sent the experts, uh, they wrote us a very detailed report, which we discussed at length with them and, and with the vendor of the asset and, and decided to hire to, to buy that particular royalty opportunity. Uh, interestingly, since that um, transaction, Keysbrook themselves have hired uh, TZMI to help them optimize their asset. They were so impressed with the work that TZMI did uh, and doing their due diligence on the asset for us. With the Copperstone project in Arizona that we purchased an 18 million US dollar stream on, we retained SRK uh, as our consultant. We, they had teams in Reno, Nevada, uh, Sudbury and Toronto. The Reno guys put on their GoPro cameras and, and went to site and, and gave us a visual tour of what they were seeing along of course with a, a written report afterwards. And in all, I think we had about a thousand hours of uh, outside technical due diligence on the asset. Uh, I would mention as well that the team itself, we've got two geologists, a a mining engineer, and I myself am a a nuclear engineer, but I've certainly become technically uh, reasonably competent, I would say, in the last 30 years of of assessing uh, these investment opportunities in the mine. Right. Okay. So if you're using outside consultants, and I appreciate the internal team, but the outside consultants need to match against a brief that you give them. So you describe the profile of what you're looking for. So if you, if you look at the, the two assets you mentioned, how close did they get to meeting your perfect investment? So with TZNMI, the issue was mine life. When we initially started to look at that asset, it was represented by the vendor to have a nine-year mine life. Uh, shortly thereafter, COVID hit and mineral sands pricing declined. And so the question was at these lower pricing levels, is it a nine-year mine life or not? The, the hard answer was that in a worst case scenario, it was a six-year mine life. This is an asset that's part of a vertically integrated conglomerate in Japan that uh, sells into Asia in particular. So the consultants told us that said, look, even if this asset operates at a loss, which it wasn't, but if he said, even if it should, they would likely still keep operating it because of the vertical integration, they still make a profit to the, uh, the change of the customer. So that was comforting. Having said that, they said, look, we think giving any normal recovery scenario that you can envision, this, this project has legs for nine years and it has a, a property package that could let you go beyond nine years. So the advantage of that actually was that we were able to take about a one-third reduction in our purchase price uh, based on the original contemplated value, simply because pricing had dropped. So we kind of bought the dip 
on that particular asset. In, in, in uh, Arizona, with the Copperstone asset, the primary concern for us going into this uh, investment was twofold. It was reserve life, number one, and number two, metallurgy. So the reserve statement available to us was a couple of years out of date. And it was uh, about a four and a half year reserve life with enough resources to get you to a, a, an eight or nine year reserve uh, mine life pretty easily. The company had actually uh, built an, an eight year mine life plan, mine plan on the back of drilling that had taken place in the two years subsequent to the reserve statement being updated. We, we vetted that ourselves and with SRK and came away confident that this was actually going to be at least an eight year my life asset, even though the official reserves two years out of date were at four and a half. Uh, we also, of course, wanted them to identify any weaknesses in the modeling of the asset, because one of the ways you can fail very quickly with a new mine operation is to have the, the grade not live up to expectations. So this is actually a reasonably high grade asset, 6.8 grams underground. Um, but we wanted to make sure <clears throat> that the, the ore body, which contained a number of high, very high grade intercepts, uh, which had been cut and capped and calculated to influence the, the overall uh, content of gold in the ore body, we wanted to make sure that was conservative. So we asked um, both the company's third party consultant to recalculate the reserves by restricting the area of influence of the high-grade material by 50%. So taking it from 30 feet down to 15 feet. So they did that recalculation for us, and the answer was the ounces changed by about 4%. So not a material change. We then asked SRK to go away and do due diligence on the asset and, and remodel the um, resource and reserve in any conservative way they felt was appropriate. We didn't tell them how to do it. We just said, be very conservative. So they went and did the same process and came out with an answer about 3% less ounces. So we came away with confidence that the reserve statement was valid and we weren't going to be met with surprises from the head grade in the opening days. The other consideration that was foremost on my mind was the, uh, the, the mill uh, flow sheet. So this is an asset that had been run briefly in the past by a prior operator. Um, this is an ore body that had had two mineralizing events, one gold and one copper, unrelated, but there was some low-grade copper in the ore body. And that's normally a red flag, because copper competes with gold uh, when it comes to cyanide. So we asked the uh, SRK in particular to give their opinion on restarting the mine with a flotation circuit in it that would recover um, both copper and gold in a concentrate. That, that concentrate would be leached to recover the gold. The benchtop studies that have been done on this process suggested about an 87% recovery. The mine had previously operated back in the 1990s uh, as an open pit um, operation with a whole ore leach uh, cyanide processing with 95% recovery. So we said to management, we would prefer that you just went back to a whole ore leach um, mill circuit, which has demonstrated 95% recoveries. You'll get about 8 to 10% higher recoveries, more gold output, and there's no real metallurgical risk in that. Um, at the end of the day, uh, there was enough doubt, let's say, uh, in the theoretical recoveries of the flotation concentrate circuit option that management agreed with us and they changed it. 
So now they're going to process the ore with whole ore leach right out of the gate. They're planning to do that in a couple of years down the road. They were just trying to save capital for the startup. And we said, look, the payback on this is, is several months. It's extremely quick. And it really increases the net present value of the project. and increases, of course, the gold balances that come to us as your capital provider. And it, it's a win-win situation. So they, we're pleased to say that they actually did that. And we made that a condition of the transaction. Right. Okay. Let, let me come back to that. If I may talk about the, the, the Japanese um, integrated company. So you, you told us your, you know, your concerns over uh, life of mine there, et cetera. But how long has this operation, how long has, has this company been in operation itself? About four years. Right. Okay. And you, so do you think that them asking for a stream on one of their assets is sort of perfectly reasonable at this, this time of their existence? This was actually, um, this was actually, sorry, the, the clocks ticked over, let's call it five years. But this was a royalty that already existed. So we were purchasing a third-party royalty, and it was already on the property. Right. Okay. Okay. So, but you said you said earlier that you would rather um, you would rather sort of create, underwrite, and create. Yeah. So that was just yes. a case of getting something going. This, this yes, exactly. So this was a, a business decision. Um, look, we're not a mineral sands focused company. Uh, mineral sands are not identified particularly as green. Let's call them neutral. The, the only green component of it really is the uh, the zircon content, which is a a zirconium mineral. And zirconium, as you may be aware, is used in uh, you know pressure tubing and, and fuel bundles in nuclear reactors. So some people think nuclear power is green, some do not. But nonetheless, let's call it a neutral mineral. Um, the opportunity for us and for me in terms of risk mitigation for the business startup was this would cover approximately half of our DNA out of the gate. And I'm, I was very um, focused on getting ourselves into positive free cash flow as a company uh, as quickly as possible. Why? I've seen too many cases where, where companies just depend on the markets to come along with the capital at the right price at the right time. And uh, as we know, it doesn't, doesn't often happen. Oh, you've seen some of these companies you know, reach incredible valuations by just doing just that. <laughs> it's not my cup of tea. Um, if, if you check my resume, I've won a, a handful of awards for risk-adjusted returns. Uh, my focus in investment management is, uh, is mitigating risk. So congratulations to those who can do it and the market cooperates, but I, I'm not going to depend on the markets. Okay. Well, that's good. We know a little bit more about you there. Okay. So like, do you feel under any pressure in the same vein, question in the same vein, do you feel under any pressure because you're new to do deals that perhaps in it with your risk adjusting mindset would normally turn away? Mm, excellent question. So, um, I had one fund manager tell me when we were marketing on the private round that he said, Kevin, you'll, you'll never buy anything. We call you Dr. No. You are, you're always saying no to things. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't fight back at that because that's not, not uh, wrong. Uh, when I came into the company, there were a few ongoing opportunities that the company was looking at. I came in about three months after the original founders. Uh, one was in uh, Burkina Faso, which is a company that, a country rather, that I've invested in a number of times in the past with success. But the political tone there has been going downhill um, in recent months. And the asset itself was transitioning from uh, an open pit right beside the mill to satellite mining about 120 kilometers away, uh, which would have exposed you to 
uh, security issues on the road, and of course, big increases in trucking costs. The, the vendor was a, a very reputable multi-billion dollar mining company, uh, which Alex had a relationship with. <clears throat> but I said, look, I said, I, I just think there's, there's a few red flags here. I, I prefer not to go this route, particularly out of the gate as a new company. So we, we dropped that. There was another opportunity in Peru, which was a um, lead zinc silver opportunity. It was a, <clears throat> a restart. And we said to the management team, look, uh, we'd like to observe how you restart the mine for a few months and just see if you meet your projections. And <clears throat> they did not. So we, we followed their, their monthly reports and we suggested to them that they had the wrong sized mining fleet. This was a, a narrow vein mining operation. And we said, clearly your dilutions out of control. What size equipment are you using? And they told us, I said, we said, well, look, that's just too big for this operation. You have to change contractors. And so they agreed to do that which was lovely. And we said, okay, great. Change your contractor, get going again, and we'll follow your progress again, and we'll see if the situation improves. So that, that one's on hold, that opportunity, but we may circle back to it. Uh, we've had other opportunities where the jurisdictions were, to me, just a little bit too, uh, too frightening. So let them go as well. Okay. So look, we, we had seven deep dives last year. We closed on three transactions and let go of four. Uh, we're doing deep dives this year. We've got a few ongoing right now. I expect we'll probably do another seven or eight this year, and I, I would love to close on uh, three of those as well. That would be lovely. Are you seeing much competition for the projects that you are looking at? We've had competition on two assets. Uh, one was a $3 million cash-flowing uh, gold royalty in the U.S. Um, we, we started that process with what I, would, I, I thought was exclusivity, but then the, the, the COVID situation hit, the gold price went up $300, and, and the, the tone of the conversation changed and it became more uh, competitive. And eventually uh, another firm uh, acquired the asset at a much higher price. We had competition on the mineral sands assets, uh, but we, we won the day there. We've seen no other competition than that. Uh, and I think the advantage of focusing on originating streams and royalties is that nobody knows you're doing it. And you get far down the line with your counterparty and generally these are management teams that I've, I've funded before. Uh, we're very familiar with each other. Uh, I think we have a very uh, non-adversarial way of doing business. We, we try to think as if we we're shareholders of our counterparty. And as shareholders of our counterparty, what would we like them to do? to advance their company, make the share price go up and have success in their development and capital programs. So we think like that, we were trained to think like that. That's how we've done things for 30 years. So we come in with that perspective and we also tell management, look, we're, we're generally here because we're interested in your upside, geologically speaking. So we'll give you the flexibility. Would you rather sell the upside? Would you rather sell the current cash flow? And we'll even make a recommendation to that regard because in some cases you wanna sell the the upside more than the cash flow and sometimes vice versa. So we give them that flexibility, of course, and uh, we, we've had feedback from our, our counterparties that uh, we've been very pleasant to deal with and uh, we're, we're not typical. We're not as adversarial. Right, so. but as we know in royalty, in the royalty game, winning a bid is not always the same as winning because some people end up overpaying and, you know, so yes. I'm interested in, you know, how do you, how do you judge and gauge what is the right price? What, what, 
do you think you have yes. got better insight having been a fund manager than perhaps a regular royalty company or indeed the companies that you're talking to? Right. So the right price, um, you know, in the context of spot gold, or it, we, we prefer to have a gold price that's at least $100 below spot when we value these things just to give us, ourselves a cushion. The, the main parameters that matter are uh, resource conversion and, and resource extension to exploration. You can't bet the farm on resource extension, but you can certainly make an educated um, calculation of resource conversion. And our view will be different than some other competitors' view of, of that number. Uh, but we will do that and then calculate a return uh, on that basis. And you know we're quite happy to pick up a, a six to ten percent return uh, by doing that. We we always analyze what our competitors are doing. So if uh, if a transaction is announced, we'll make an effort to calculate what return they they actually achieved. Um, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not so good in our opinion. But at the end of the day, the overall return is going to be more materially affected uh, by the geology, I think, than the operations of whatever you know about for sure. Okay. Again, I just want to understand what you feel your competitive edge is. You already said origination is, is, is good it's less competitive and you're reaching out to people that perhaps you financed in the past, but that's going to yeah. be an ever dwindling list, right? So at some point you're going to need some way of making sure that you are at the table, that you are able to you know, bid for uh, projects. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you deal with so, that? Yeah. So at the moment, the, the, the popular way to get in the business and grow quickly is to pick up a, you know, a basket of royalties from a, a mining company that's vending them. And, you know, that's, there's, there's some good, good and bad things about that. It's nice to have a, a, a large portfolio to work with. Uh, from what we've seen in, in data rooms, you're generally getting minimal cash flow and more optionality on some of these baskets. So it's not where we, t we prefer to compete at this point. We've been told by um, fund managers and pension funds that, Gee, uh, looks like you got a good little team there, guys. Let's get going. When you get bigger, come back and see us. And so we have to get ourselves, we've been told by many that the threshold is $100 million um, market value, where we're currently about $35 million, so we have a ways to go. Uh, and that'll open the door to capital. And the capital will open the door to larger deals. And we may be at the table uh, a few years down the road with the bigger players. We're not going to be there for a while. And at the moment, we're quite happy to to dabble in the 10 to $50 million racket. Um, as you, you know, your, your comment about um, running out of ideas or opportunities, let's say, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, having been in this business for 30 years, um, I can tell you that there, there's always uh, dozens of opportunities every year and they change of course from year to year, but there's, there's never a shortage of opportunities. And the, the really interesting thing about opportunities and why I think there's going to be lots of them is because we're competing as capital providers. Um, really, we're competing with the cost of equity capital. Everybody knows that screens can come in and they're going to beat gold loans. They're going to beat credit uh, spreads and fees and warrants and covenants and things like that. But you're really competing with equity. You have to convince or identify opportunities where you can say, look, your cost of equity capital is far higher 
than the cost of capital we can provide with you. And to that end, if you look at the, the metrics published by the, the research groups and the large banks, for example, here in, in Canada, the intermediate sector is trading at the most recent numbers I've seen about 0.7 times NAV using a 1640 long-term goal price. Um, the juniors similar and the developers about 0.65 times NAV. And I'll tell you, if you have a, a 10 year mine line uh, development project, uh, you're going to be trading at a discount to your 5% NAV because it's your capital challenge. The market knows you need money. If you're trading at 0.8 times NAV, your cost of equity capital is 10%. If you're trading at 0.6 times NAV, your cost of equity capital is 17%. In my experience, empirically observing what pre-capital companies trade for in the marketplace over 30 years, 17% is about the number. And if you look at these uh, mid-tier producers now who are producing a few hundred thousand ounces a year, they're trading at 0.7 times NAV, which is astounding. You know, when I started in my career, Barrick was trading at two times NAV, and now it's trading at one. So, you know, since the introduction of the, um, the, the bullion ETFs back in 2004, the, the valuation metrics have just collapsed for these companies, and, and rightly so to some degree. Uh, but we are now in the sweet spot, from my perspective, uh, being able to compete very effectively with almost anybody who needs capital. Now, if you're an intermediate, you're probably self-funding and don't need guys like me. Um, but some of the base metal companies now with the base metal cycle turning, they're looking at expanding, right? Or developing assets. And some of these assets, as you know, have primary base metals with, with precious metals byproducts. There's no reason why we can't help out by, by taking some of that precious metals byproduct off their hand and providing capital. And a base metal company typically trades at a discount to the 8% now. So if you're trading at 0.8 times 8% NAV, you've got a double digit equity cost of capital for sure. And so we can easily compete in that space. And more than that, you're getting market credit of maybe four to five times cash flow for your precious metals byproduct uh, in a streaming company that would be up to 15 times, right? So there's, there's lots of value arbitrage there where we can say, look, we can, we can give you a better value than the market's giving you for these precious metals, supply your development or expansion capital, and there's still room for us to win as well. So we think there's lots and lots of opportunities. But you've got to find them, and they, you don't want to necessarily competitive environments. So there's a few things you said there which have intrigued me. One, the ability to, uh, you will look at base metals. Does it necessarily need to have yes. a precious metal byproduct? No, no, we'll, we'll pick up a copper asset for okay. sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, secondly, you talked about a sort of longer term growth um, plan in the sense that you're not, you don't feel un, un, under any pressure to grow quickly. We, we, we've seen a, a new entrant into the marketplace go and do a merger of equals, well, an acquisition of equals actually is worse than that, um, but they overpaid because they thought size would be on their size and that hasn't really worked out for them. <laughs> Okay, so I'm just I'm intrigued by what you say. You, you don't mind taking a little bit longer to kind of get up to that hundred million mark, where you feel that you're going to be yep. offered the cheaper capital. Yeah. So look, if, if we sat here and did nothing and just waited nine months for Copperstone's gold stream to come online, we'll be free cash flowing six point six million next year to add to our twelve million in cash. I mean, we're we're in, we're in great shape. We're, we're not under pressure to do a bad deal or a risky deal or a marginal deal just to get bigger. Um, I, I will say that uniquely for us, and I think this is very pleasant, um, we have been an innovator in the um, 
the carbon credit royalty space. Yeah, so We've done something new. Yeah, tell, tell us about that. I thought it was interesting, know, actually. Yeah. So, you know, this was something that, uh, that our chairman, Tony Lesiat, came across through his connections. He was actually trying to tap into First Nations um, mineral royalty opportunities, and he came across uh, this, this carbon credit opportunity. So we pursued it, um, educated ourselves on the business, and there's a lot of educating to be done. Believe me, there's a lot of complexities, a lot of political conflict, etc. But so nonetheless, this is a, a market that's here to stay, and it's a bull market for carbon credits. So we were happy to, to get into that space. Um, the size of the transactions um, that we're looking at currently, are, they're not tens of millions, they're hundreds of thousands or a million or two. So, um, and there's cash flow visibility within a couple of years on all these opportunities. And, you know, we've actually been told by investors that they would like us to, to accelerate the green side of our portfolio faster than the precious metals side of the portfolio. And so we are working on a couple of opportunities in each world at the moment. And uh, we, can, we can tuck those in very comfortably without straining our balance sheets. And I think give us a unique flavor, which would certainly going back to your original question about differentiation, you know, nobody else is doing this. So th this would certainly differentiate us. And we're actually contemplating incubating a, a, we'll call it a green star vehicle within star royalties. And so when it gets to a certain critical mass, we'd be happy to spin it out to the public market so we could raise capital through it, uh, retain control of it so we can consolidate the cash flows, but give ourselves another financing mechanism. And potentially from what we've seen, I mean, there's limited activity to, to look at, but from what we've seen, um, you know, the cost of capital for green investments is, is quite low, very low. So we think that there's arbitrage there between the cost of capital and what we can um, achieve as, as early stage investors, leading edge investors in the space. Okay, and so tell me, tell me about the obviously uh, Copstone is one project, and you're talking about six and a half million bucks there. Um, what what other revenues have you got coming in, or near term revenues have you got coming in? Yeah, our, our mineral sands is um, we budgeted about five hundred twenty five thousand US this year for mineral sands. Our cash overheads are about a million dollars Canadian, so it'll pay a good chunk of our cash overheads. Um, We've actually just received our first check from that, which came in for the last quarter. And the product pricing we're seeing is about uh, 15 to 20% higher than, than we budgeted. Um, we don't have enough experience to say if that's going to continue, but uh, so far we're off to a good start. So perhaps we'll do a bit better on our revenue side. Why, why is the GNA so high? What are you spending it on? Uh, I, I don't know if you think a million dollars is high. Uh, there's, there's four management team that are drawing salaries, about 150 apiece. I've opted not to draw a salary uh, ever. Uh, and of course, we have no office costs. The rest is a bit of marketing and, and legal costs primarily. Exchange listing fees, that sort of thing. So you're not taking a salary, you're taking director's fees or consultancy fees or how, how, you, how, not, how are you? Not, you're a structured finance yeah. guy. How have you structured your remuneration? Yeah, so I, I get $100,000 in RSUs that best over three years. Uh, I get just under a million options at 70 cents. And then I'm working for free. Why? I think the, the cash, first of all, I want to be very aligned with the shareholders. I want them to know that I'm, I'm putting my capital, I've financed every round this company has had. Um, I want them to know that I'm aligning myself with them. If this does not succeed, I don't get a return on my investment. Also, 
I want to head for a, uh, a decent dividend policy. So I want to be compensated for my time. Dividends would be nice. And all investors like to have those dividends. But this is part of the, um, <clears throat> the philosophy is that, and all of us agree very strongly on this, we want to be first quartile in every governance metric that people look at with, with mining companies. And, and your compensation is a real sore point and has been um, over the years for me as an investor. And so <clears throat> for these gentlemen to take $150,000 a year, that's, that's way below market. They also get the RSUs that I'm getting. So you know they've got some equity skin in the game, but we're very much trying to align our management team for equity rewards as opposed to salary re rewards. Okay. And I don't think a million dollars is high, by the way. If you check around the street, that's-, that's well, it's, 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 be, well, for a company of 34 million market cap, right? That, that, that's, that's where I was getting to. It, ah, well, I, I look at it, it's a million dollars of, of cash GNA, but we still net out pro forma at 6.6 .6 million after tax. So, and that's just out of the gate <clears throat> as a start. And the GNA is not gonna go up as fast as the, as the revenue in the free cash flow, of course. Right. You know, GNA is gonna be very stable and we're gonna grow the free cash flow. Okay, okay. Why are you only 34 million market cap? Yeah. That's a good question. So we started uh, marketing our IPO <clears throat> in early January. The gold price was 1960. By the time we finished, it was $200 lower. And uh, so we actually were building a book for the IPO at 90 cents. And we had an $11 million book on a $20 million raise. And, and then a few weeks later, the gold price dropped 50 bucks and cracked uh, 1800 at the time. And the book stopped increasing and uh, we said, look, we have to get this over the line. Um, we need to raise some capital to fund our Goldstream acquisition by the end of February. So we, we lowered the price and we threw on a warrant, a three-year warrant at a dollar. Um, that was painful, to be honest. That was not my expectation going in. I thought we'd do much better. <clears throat> Nonetheless, that's how it ended up. And of course, you know, whenever you put warrants onto a, an offering, there's just players out there who, who sell the stock and, <clears throat> and uh, keep the warrants. Surprisingly, uh, from day one, actually not surprisingly, but interestingly, <clears throat> the warrants have gone up while the stock's gone down. <laughs> so people value the warrants and the upside for the company longer term, three-year warrants, uh, but the warrant strippers have been waiting on the stock. And at, at 52 cents yesterday's close, 35 million market cap, again, I, you know, five times cash flow, 3.6 times EV to cash flow, about a 27% free cash flow yield next year. Uh, I've never seen anything that cheap in this in the sector in my life. Okay. Do you think people are slightly confused by your story? You've got mineral sands, copper, gold, precious metals, much more easily understood in North America, royalty stories. So hmm. you're missing a trick? I think the way we, we present it is 80% precious, 20% green. There's been no confusion. Uh, we have had questions about the mineral sands, and I will admit that that's an outlier to some degree, but it's it's a $3 million investment and it's it's not material in the long run. We're not scouring the world looking for mineral sands opportunities. No, I get, I get it, but you also haven't done a whole stack on the precious metal side either. Correct. But we've done five transactions in our first 18 months. Uh, if you look back five years, the royalty space typically does three to four transactions a year per company. So we're in the realm. Okay, um, and 
what are your gold equivalent royalty link reserves and resources at the moment? Uh, we've got about 4,200 ounces of gold equivalent production starting next year. Uh, if you just use a blended, well, let's, let's, let's take the worst case scenario for mill sense at six years and the worst case scenario at Copperstone of let's call it five years. Um, that we'd, we'd have that kind of production for five or six years. Uh, we'd have to replace it with something else after that. But we think in both cases, we've got three or four more years at least. So in terms of the projects that you've, you've, you've done, so I'm, I'm sort of interested in you know, how developed are they, where, the degree of certainty you have over the timing of those. Because again, if I you know, yeah. listen to conversations from royalty companies in the space, they're claiming... Yeah. Uh, production from projects in three years' time, which don't even have a, a resource number today. <laughs> yeah, that with <laughs> red flags everywhere for me. So you know, when you're looking at the projects that you're done, what, what's, what's, what's this kind of cash flow look like over the next five years? Okay, so so the mineral sands is cash flowing now. Copperstone will be cash flowing Q1 of next year, so call it nine months. The carbon credit. Uh, Royalty, we expect a cash flow in, in 2023. And the reason for that is that um, the Ontario government and, and the federal government are wrangling over carbon credit protocols at the moment. Uh, once those protocols are established, and they're, 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 they already exist in, in many jurisdictions, they, they would just be copied more or less. But it's a matter of um, the provinces and, and the federal government in Canada deciding who gets to call the shot on carbon pricing within their jurisdiction. Obviously, the, high, the higher the carbon pricing, um, the more of a, of a cash penalty for, for those who are heavy emitters. So that protocol is still in the flux. Um, we think it'll be settled this year. Once it's settled, the forests will have to be certified, which is a short process where people actually go in and they, they have a look at the uh, varieties of trees and the state of growth of those trees and they make an assessment as to the baseline carbon uh, metric, and then they go back a year later and they assess the growth, and then you get a calculation of your carbon credit, which could be monetized. So we think that whole process between establishing the protocol and, and, and the one year of accruing carbon credits will take us into 2023. The two other opportunities in, uh, in lithium uh, exploration and copper-silver exploration, those, those have no timeline attached to them. Uh, they are very clearly wealth creation uh, opportunities. I personally think they could be 10 baggers with even a, a modicum of success, but there's no, there's no visibility on cash flow at all. So they're, they're in our 10% bucket. Right. And in terms of the way, I'm just wondering how you will measure what, um, when cash flowing um, events will happen. Do you look at a two-year time horizon, a three-year, five-year? I mean, wealth creation is one thing. It's down yeah. the line. Ten baggers. Those are yeah. easy yeah. phrases, right? But you, you've because the reason is I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at your presentation. Looking at the way that you talk about this. You talk about the 70-20-10 rule of you know you like cash flowing, you like near-term cash yeah. flowing, and you like wealth creation events. But right now, of your five, you've got two. You've got one cash flowing, one near-term cash flowing, and the rest not so much. So does that give us a clue as to the sorts of deals that you're looking to do this year and next? So when I was a portfolio manager, uh, my comfort level for cash flow visibility was one year. I used to fly down to properties that were kind of half developed, make sure that the, uh, the treasury was still adequately funded to finish the job. The, the lead items were on site. Someone in China had not stolen your mill. 
nobody was picketing the project, the government hadn't changed the rules, etc. And if, if I checked all those boxes, I would go home and buy the stock and get the re-rates in the production. Uh, in the streaming business, you're necessarily coming in earlier because the development capital is needed earlier than one year. Uh, my, my comfort level is two years as long as the asset's permitted. If you're in that gray zone of waiting for permits, forget it. You, you have no idea. You just don't know. So if an asset's permitted, I'm quite comfortable two years out, and that would fall into our near-term cash flow visibility bucket. If it's beyond two years, then it's, it's in our 10% bucket of we think it's going to be three years, but guess what? It's three years. So it's in our, our 10% bucket. So we, <clears throat> we try to keep our low cash flow visibility investments to less than 10% of the portfolio, which I think is a differentiator between ourselves and many of our peers who have large portfolio baskets where I would say that the majority of the assets do not have visibility on cash flow. So to answer the question, you're going to be looking at more near-term cash flowing projects coming up? We're, we're very much, look, I've, I've told the guys that our focus right now, <clears throat> with the exception of green, because there's always going to be about at least a one-year lag in the green, um, our focus is on cash flowing opportunities. I want to take our existing cash and, and boost that 2022 or even 2021 uh, free cash flow number. So the market immediately gets the sense that, hey, these guys are serious about generating cash. So our focus right now is on cash opportunities. And when our cost of capital is unattractive, which it is now with the stock at 50 cents, uh, we're looking and we're doing some studies this week on, on, on what the proper balance of um, equity and, and leverage is in a, in a larger opportunity beyond our 12 million cash. And we've, we've done those numbers based on the yields that are available to us, we believe. And we, we see there's room for perhaps 15 million US of, of leverage in our capital structure in conjunction with the cash flow opportunities that we contemplate being able to do. So we're, we're not dependent on the market for an equity raise here to go beyond our $12 million of available liquidity. Okay. I, I think that's when it gets interesting when we start seeing what you do next, as in you're delivering on everything you're setting out today. <laughs> it, it does get interesting. But I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Matt, you know, look, we could – count on next year's Copperstone cash flow as part of our calculation for something we do this year, we're not going to do that. We want anything we do that has any leverage attached to it be self-amortizing in the context of the debt structure and equity structure for that investment by itself. In that case, Copperstone is going to be a backup in case something goes wrong. So you're not going to leverage that? Interesting. Okay. I, I don't want to leverage the Copperstone, no. Okay. Well, we I don't have it yet. Well, there is that. Um, we, <laughs> we, I think we're kind of out of time. Um, I would love sure. to talk to you again because I'm liking the, the ESG component and I'm liking the, the the model of what you're targeting. It's really interesting to me. So you must come back on again soon and maybe we'll dive down to some of the other uh, rabbit holes we, we, we avoided today. But um, okay. congratulations, new entrance with a plan. Um Keep in touch. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.